In today's episode, Doug McKee joins me to talk about his online course that is taught in such a way as to be about as close to an in-person class as you can get, but without being bound by geographic barriers. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today, I welcome back to the show, Doug McKee. He is the Associate Chair and Senior Lecturer of Economics at Yale. His additional fields of interest are development economics, labor economics, health economics, and structural estimation. Doug, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. It's great to be here again, Bonnie. As I continue to learn, or I shouldn't say learn about you, but tell others about you, I go to your Twitter bio. It says you're a lecturer in the Yale Economics Department, and I love this last half. It says, I believe all great teachers have a lot to learn. And that certainly reflects who you are and the work that you do. But I'm curious, now that we know a little bit about your academic endeavors there at Yale, and we know you have this passion for continual improvement in your teaching. What do we not know about you that's important to know about who you are? Well, there's the fact that it took me a, quite a long time to figure out that, that I'm a teacher. My undergraduate degree is actually in computer science, and I had a, a passion for, I really, well, I really wanted to create a person and kind of with computer software. Uh, it took me a few years to realize that that was, was a lot harder than I thought it would be. I went on to do internet software development, got a little burned out from that, ended up deciding that economics was a, a great way to, to kind of make my small dent in the universe, and did basically focused on economic research for many years. And then it was only about, I would say, six years ago that I had a chance to teach a class, and I loved it. And found myself in my in the shower instead of thinking about how I was going to solve some economic research problem. I was thinking about how I would solve trying to thinking about how I would solve some problem I was having in the classroom for getting some some concept across. And I would get excited about teaching things. And it was only probably last year uh, after I got transitioned to instead of fifteen percent of my time teaching and. 85% doing research to, I would say, 85% teaching, 15% of my time doing research, that I realized, well, well, my mom's a teacher, and her mom is, was a teacher too, and I'm, um, well, gosh, I guess, I guess I'm also a teacher. Well, I'm so happy to have you back on the show, and I know you and I actually are still in the process of struggling with what we should even call today's show, because there are so many different ways of referring to learning and teaching as it goes online. And I know we're going to start with just this, this term, small private online classes, but it's not quite going to be descriptive enough. So we'll break that down a little bit. But tell me a little bit about how you define a small private online class and especially what it's not. The classes that I teach, 
I've taught for three summers now in the Yale summer session. They're online classes and they look nothing like these massive online open classes that, that you hear about in the newspaper and that used to be kind of what everyone thought was the future of all education. And now I think people have kind of woken up from the, and now they have a little bit of a hang over the pendulum swung the other way. But I think online classes can be a lot of different things. And so when I would tell people I teach online, they'd say, oh, you have a MOOC. I'd say, no, I don't, actually. I have about between, I would say, five to 20 students at any given time. Uh, my classes are synchronous, so they start at a particular time. Uh, the students, they all kind of do the assignments in sync and take exams in sync, as opposed to like an asynchronous class where anybody can start at any time, something you would see on, say, Udacity's website, for example. There are some parts that are literally at 7 p.m. or 5 p.m., and then exactly. there are some parts that just need to be done that week. Is that correct? Or before the live session that week, live sessions? So the, the way it's structured is there's a recorded video component. So the students are expected to watch about an hour of video before each class, and then they show up. Uh, and by showing up, that means they log in and we use software called Zoom to do this. And I sit at my desk and I have two monitors. And on one monitor, I have my slides that I'm going to use to teach that day. And on the other monitor, I see a big grid of, of people. And depending on who I'm talking to, I say, oh, it's like if I'm talking to a younger group, I say, oh, it's like a Google Hangout. Uh, if it's a little older group, I say it's like the Brady Bunch. <laughs> And if it's a little older, I say it's the Hollywood Squares. But basically, it's a big grid of faces. And they're all there. And I say, good morning, everybody. And we have an hour-long class. But there's also exams at particular times and due dates for homework. Everybody has to have their homework in at a particular time. So in that sense, that's the way in which it's synchronous. On the exam, and I know you're going to talk a little bit about using Canvas. Is that where the exam is, is actually no. housed? No, not at all, actually. The, we've, we've tried a few things. We've tried three, three years, we've tried three different exam strategies. Okay? So the first year, we monitored the exam through the video conferencing software that we, we were using. So the director of the program would watch a few students, and I would watch a few students, and my, my teaching assistant would also watch a few students. And at the end of the semester, at the end of the term, uh, I was really unhappy with that. I felt it was just way too easy to cheat. I had no reason to think any of my students cheated, but a system where it's easy to cheat eventually is going to get um, circumvented mm -hmm. systematically. And so the next year, we had all students had to, all students had to go to a, a testing center nearby. So we, we contracted with a, a firm that, uh, that managed a network around the world where they, I think they said something like 90% of the world's population was within a two or three hour drive of a testing center, mm -hmm. which was good because we had students that were uh, in Bangkok, uh, in Tokyo, in Madrid. Uh, the toughest one was actually in rural Montana. So she had to, to drive, I think, I want to say like eight hours to get to Butte, oh, Montana, gosh. which was where the nearest testing center was. 
<laughs> Hopefully uh, she stopped was, at Target while she was there <laughs> and picked right, up right. her supplies. Right, right, right. <laughs> Did some grocery shopping before she went back. <laughs> uh, she was actually, she was, she was taking the class on a farm. Oh, wow. And the internet was best outside. Huh? So at one point I, I made a, a comment in passing about goats. And she said, oh, I've got some goats right here. And she turned her laptop and sure <laughs> enough, there were goats walking by behind her. What a diverse uh, group. But that's, I mean, that's the power of the, of the online mm-hmm. class is it, it just opens up the possibilities of who can take it yeah. by, by a huge amount. So in this case, it was, I mean, we'll get to this, but it's, we weren't lowering the price, but we were lowering the, the geographic barriers. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Yale students, they often will go off and do crazy things over the summer all around the world. And this was a way for them to, to also kind of take classes at the same time. You said there were three things you tried and you listed yeah, three. Yeah, so I didn't like... So <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm having flashbacks to recent presidential debates. <laughs> you never want to list things, especially not with your fingers, I hope. <laughs> right, right, right. There were three things. This is, this is this one I can handle, though. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> So at the end of that summer, I felt like it was just pretty inconvenience. Mm. Uh, and this, it was rock solid in terms of cheating. So I liked that, but it was fairly inconvenience. And the students would go and they would have to take the exam at these testing centers uh, using really old software and type in all their answers. And that wasn't great. I mean, this is a math class. So I wanted them to be able to uh, write down equations, and it's a lot faster to do that with a with a pencil or a pen mm-hmm. and paper than it is to type in um, type in their work. And so this past summer, uh, we used a web proctoring service where a third party would actually watch each student take their exam. At the beginning, they have the students move their laptop camera around so that so that the proctor can look under their desk and see what they have posted on the wall near them Uh, and the software that they use actually locks down the computer so they can't browse the web at the same time and i felt like after watching kind of how this was done sure cheating is possible but i would say it was about as difficult in this situation as it would be to cheat in a kind of a standard classroom situation. And I think that's the bar mm-hmm. that I wanted to hit was, are these, are these test results as credible as a standard college classroom? And are you comfortable sharing who you're using and the approximate price for, and is that price passed so on no to the students? I have no idea what the price was. Okay. I, I don't think it was high. And I believe that the, the, the firm we used was Examity. So tell us about your course, then you have Introduction to Econometrics, which is officially called Econometrics and Data Analysis One. Tell us about this course. So it's a course that tries to teach the basics of, of, the basics of probability and statistics, as well as uh, basic econometric methods. This is econometrics is very similar to statistics in the sense that it's a way of learning things about the world by analyzing data. Uh, But what's different about econometrics is it's a particular set of statistical methods that are designed to to measure instead of just associations, uh, to measure actually causal effects. So we know that 
if you go and you look at data, what you'll find is cities that have very high crime rates also have uh, high numbers of police per capita. Okay, this does not mean that as you hire more police, that crime increases. But you might want. But the relevant policy question is: Well, what happens if I'm going to add uh, one more police officer to the to the force? What's how is that going to affect the crime rate? These are the kinds of questions you need to know ans have answers to in order to optimally uh, hire the the right size police force, for example. Mm -hmm. Economists are very interested in writing down kind of models of the economy and then estimating the parameters of those models. So we, we have, I, I know that uh, people respond to prices. When prices go up, uh, economic theory tells me that people will buy less. And if I lower prices, people will buy more. But it doesn't say how much. And so we use econometric methods and data to tell us exactly how price sensitive uh, people are for a particular product or some particular group is uh, to the to the price of some particular products. It's a lot to cover. Uh, it's a class that's very layered. Uh, it's it's one of these classes where it's absolutely critical that you not fall behind because everything builds on what you did the last class. Uh, and doing it all in five weeks is a challenge. Mm. And so the students, they watch a video. They wa or they watch usually about five or six 10-minute videos. Um, before every class, they take a quiz, an online quiz. They can take it two times. So I used to have them, I used to let them take the quizzes as many times as they wanted. <laughs> but what I found was they would just keep, some of, the, some of my students would not pay any attention to what the answers were, and they would just just keep plugging in answers until they got the right answer. And I don't want that. I want you trying hard in each, each time. How so many can, questions on each quiz? Uh, 10 to 15. Okay. And is it a bank of questions so that if they take it that second time, it's a different question set or is it always the same? Always the same. And they know what they got wrong. And so the, they can go back and they can, they can go back and check. The five to six online videos, are these videos of you giving a lecture or someone else or it just depends? Uh, they're all me giving the lecture. And any, so, any advice that you would have for people who are looking to create a bank of small mini lectures like this? So there's, I think there's kind of two ways you can go about it that work. Uh, one is if it's a class you've, you already teach, then you can get a camera person in the back of the class and they can film you teaching the class. And then you can slice and dice the video into little pieces. And if you know that that's what's going to happen, it'll, you can tailor your, your in-person lecture such that it will chunk. And so that's what I did for this class. Mm. For other classes, I would probably not do that. I would probably do a fairly straightforward kind of talking and screen capture. Um, I don't think you need super high production values uh, as long as you're keeping it short and you're keeping it clear. Um, so I do a whole bunch of things online. I have my professional website at dougmckee.net. <laughs> I've got my teaching blog at teachbetter.co. I've got my personal blog for fun, which I, where I blog about all different things for fun. That's highvariance.net. And I have a YouTube channel. And the YouTube channel just has 
like five to 10 short videos about uh, different econometric methods that I made for a different class uh, last, last winter. I didn't advertise them. I just threw them online and I told my 25 students about them. It is by far the most successful thing that I've done online in terms of pure numbers. I've had, I, I think last time I checked, I had 35,000 views of these videos. And they're just little videos that I made uh, in my dining room when it was dark, like after my kids had gone to bed. I mean, they're, they're, they're very kind of Khan Academy style. Um, and so you, you don't need a, a big film crew. You don't need like snazzy video, um, digital effects. Uh, you just need to be clear and know what you're doing and, and communicate it well. My experience has been that I try to steer people away from filming their live lectures, but you you hit on the way that it can work, which is to splice and dice them. But what I see oh, yeah. so often is people just have that, for example, 50-minute lecture, and they just record that start to finish and throw it online and think that it's going to be engaging enough to translate to an online. And that, that really doesn't work well. So I, oh. I tend to encourage people, especially people who are just starting at this, no, build a seven to 10 minute video that is built for someone sitting in front of a computer screen. Right. That's right. Yep. I agree completely. Yeah, and it I looks like completely. I just went to your YouTube video or videos. I didn't know that you had them and they look to me. I don't see your face anywhere, but is oh. it just because that's the title? Of no, it? my face doesn't appear at all. Uh, so you're filming yeah. off of, you're using a screen casting product Correct. to create them and and which one is that are you do you use multiple ones uh those are all done uh with just QuickTime. oh okay oh yeah you yeah. i remember there was some time we were emailing back and forth and i was trying to use some grandiose tool and you were saying right. just use QuickTime. <laughs> QuickTime if if people listening are on a mac you just can record what's on your screen. And in this case, it looks like you've recorded a PowerPoint or something of that nature, but you yep. could record whatever was on a screen and that will allow you to save it as a video. So we're not seeing you because you said you were recording it in your dining room. That's where I got confused. You're recording it on your computer of your, of exactly. your screen, what they're looking at. Yeah, exactly. And the key, okay. So a key piece of this is it's me talking and it's PowerPoint slides, but a huge amount of the, those videos is, um, using a tablet, okay? So I've got a cheap little Wacom tablet that I'll annotate my slides while I'm talking. Mm. So I have horrible handwriting, I do my best, uh, but it just gives it kind of a, a lot more kind of visual movements and I think keeps it more interesting uh, instead of just having everything on the slides. For people using iPads, there's an app called Explain Everything that would achieve the same results that Doug is describing, but you could actually record your voice and do these annotations on your iPad. So people may want to check that one out. I've heard great things about explain everything. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit now that you've talked about your class, what has worked in terms of all of your evolution of the course? What's, what's been the keys to making it successful? So the zoom software for the, okay. So the, there's the there's this, the the live video components. Um, the Zoom software has been rock solid that we use. So if you go to zoom.us, anyone can just download it. Uh, it's it's software that has very few features, um, but what it does is it lets you share 
any window you want. So I can bring up my statistical analysis software and actually analyze data right there and everyone can see it. I can share my slot, share my PDF, the, the, my PDF viewer with my slides in it. Uh, and it's got a little bit of, of annotation tools. So no matter what window I bring up, I can use the zoom annotation tools to draw on it, to point things out. Um, they've actually got a, a brand new feature that I'm super, super excited about. They just launched it. I'm excited to use it next summer, which is breakout rooms. So something I do in my in-person classes, I'll say break into groups of three or four, work on this problem, see if you can kind of explain it to each other. And then we'll kind of get back together and we'll talk about how the different groups solve these, the problems, uh, with the new software you're able to actually randomly, with a press of a button, put throw everyone into a separate conference room um, in groups of three or four, or however many you want, and then hop between these as the instructor easily, and then press a button to close them all down and bring everybody back all at once. That I feel like is one of the big thing, one of the one of the only things that I can't do. Uh, now in my online classes that I can do in an in-person class. There's a lot of different products out there that do video conferencing. Um, I think getting the right one makes a pretty big difference. Uh, having a good learning management system behind the class. So I use Canvas uh, by Instructure and it's very flexible. I can have the course website look exactly like I want it to. I think for an online class this is critical. We also uh, at Yale, some of us use it for our in-person classes. I mean, it competes with things like Blackboard. Um, there's a whole bunch of, of other products like this. W one feature I like a lot is it's got very good support for online quizzes. And those have been critical to get students actually watching the video. Um, a third piece is actually paying attention to who's watching the video. So a lot of the... To, the software that we use for the video actually keeps track of who watches what. And so I can tell, hey, so-and-so, it looks like you haven't been watching the videos before class. Uh, you might want to get on that. Is the software that you are using to tell if they watch the video, is that by embedding the video in Canvas or is that something else? We've been using Kaltura, which yeah. I'm not sure Kaltura is uh, something we're going to continue using, and I wish the logging was better. Um, but that's what we're you. That's what we've been using. Are they served up from inside of Canvas, but it's just in the background? Kaltura. The, the key thing is that the, it it puts a, a like an ID wall in between, so students have to log in in order to access the video. And once they log in, we can tell who they are and keep track of what they're watching and what they're not. Got it. That makes sense. I mean, if they really wanted to game it, they could hit play and go do something else. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not really, that's not usually what's going on. Usually they want to watch. They just didn't get around to it. But the quizzes are key to, to make sure that they actually come to, to the live sessions prepared. And the quizzes are served up, you said, on Canvas. Those are on Canvas. And that's... Canvas allows you to put uh, mathematical equations into the questions and into the answers, oh, which is really great. And they are not proctored, those, those, no, those weekly No, not classes. proctored at all. Low stakes. Mm -hmm. 
one thing that doesn't work, and I think this is true all of, of flipped classes. So these on the kinds of online classes that I teach are very much like a like what you would see universities experimenting with in terms of a flipped classroom. They watch the video outside and then they show up for the live sessions. My live sessions just happen to happen to be remote, uh, ready to work. And so something that that doesn't work is say, come with questions about the material and then we'll talk. I have tried that. I want that to work. I feel like it should work and it totally does not work and it's never worked. They show up, they don't have, they don't have any questions. And so what I do is I come with questions. And so most of the sessions that we start off and I say, all right, do you have questions? No, okay, I've got questions. And then I go around the room. And I say, well, what about this? How would you answer this question? What about this? How about this? And it becomes very clear very quickly that they didn't really understand the material as deeply as they thought they did. And a lot of learning happens during those, during those live sessions through kind of this Socratic method. And in the Socratic method, you're actually calling on specific students. Julie, what do you, yes. how would you answer this? Yeah, and that does I, probably increase the likelihood that I'll be less tempted to go and start checking other social media while <laughs> we're all in this session yeah, if I think I might be true. called on. Yeah. And they can't, they, most of them are on laptops, so their screen isn't big enough for them to watch social media things and be in the class and see the slides that are going by and, and, and I can see their eyes. And so, and another big advantage of online is their names show up under their, under their faces. And so I never have to, I never forget a name. I should also say that what, so what does work in the, in the live sessions is a lot of structure. Mm. So, and, the, and, the, and then the structure it lightens up somewhat as the term goes on, as they learn more, they, I give them kind of longer problems to work on. But what I don't do is expect them to come kind of prepared and just talk. Okay. Yeah. You were talking about that your lab sessions are very active and you create a lot of variety. Could you give us a couple of examples of that? So my favorite live session actually is, uh, is near the end of the term and what I do is I give them data from the, from about the Titanic. So I give them a data set where each observation is a passenger that was on the Titanic. And it has a, lot of, a, a bunch of characteristics. So like their sex, their age, uh, what relatives they had on board, what class of ticket they had, where they got on the, on the boat, and whether they survived or not. And I have them kind of construct models to try to predict, see what, which of these characteristics actually predicts uh, survival. So was it women and children first? Were the first class passengers more likely to get spots on the lifeboat than the, than the third class passengers? And, it's a, it's a, and so what I do is I break them into these small groups. This was a lot harder before when Zoom didn't have this breakout room feature, but you could still do it with multiple conference rooms. And I would go from conference room to conference room and kind of see what they were working on and see them working together and kind of push them along in different places. And that worked, that worked pretty well. Another time, we, I had them read 
papers that applied the methods that we had learned. And then we, I had them uh, explain to me what the tables in the papers meant. Okay, and like, what, what, what do we actually learn from these, these research articles? That all sounds fascinating. I want to know what the answer was. <laughs> oh, yeah. Women and children first and the first class folks uh, got in the lifeboats because their cabins were closer to the, to, to the deck. Oh, okay. And, but people really did. Like, they, they, they sent the women and the children into the boats first. Mm. Um, yeah. And Much what, more likely to survive if you were a female or you were a child. What are some things that haven't worked? Mistakes that you've made that you now have since corrected? Oh boy. Well, the, the online testing that we did the first time around was a disaster. Uh, let me give you, okay, so let me give you one good example. So this, this summer, uh, the technology actually stayed the same. Uh, but what changed, uh, but I still wanted to change something because I always have to change something and try to make things better. And what I did is I added a group project. I wanted to run it in my big lecture class this fall, but I decided I would pilot it over the summer since I was running, I taught the online class uh, once in June and then again in July. And so in June, I didn't really know what I wanted. I wanted them to, to do these, these projects. I wanted them to, use, to propose questions that they cared about and they could answer at the beginning, uh, even though they, hadn't, they didn't know the tools that they were using. And I didn't really know what the, I, I knew what I wanted the intermediate deliverables, deliverables to be, but I, not in detail. And so it didn't actually go all that well that first time through. Uh, and if, when I looked at my course evaluations, one, of the, one person said really clearly, I didn't know what he wanted at the beginning. And it wasn't until the very end when we passed in the project that I actually kind of felt like I understood what, it, what was wanted. And so what I did during the semester is every time someone would ask me a question about the project, I would answer them and I would go back and I would edit the assignments uh-huh. so that the answer was already in the assignments. And then after I'd received the first deliverable, what I called the data description, I said, oh, this is what they passed in. This is, I like this. I don't like this. I made a rubric. Mm. Okay. And then I, my, my, TA and I graded the, the projects based on the rubric, and then we handed it back. Well, when I taught it in the second session, I handed out the rubrics for the, for the assignments at the very beginning, so they knew what they were getting into. Um, and so the first time around, I, I guess I, it wasn't something that I knew that it was going to go badly. I just also knew that I was going to gather a lot of good information, yeah. and um, it would go better the next time. I love it. Well, this is the point in the show when we get to recommendations and I'm watching the clock because I know you have an appointment. So I'm going to have you go first. So I tried something new in my seminar class last spring. Um, All my students all semester long, I had about 25 of them, worked very hard on these research projects. And I knew that I wanted them to be able to share what they learned and that this hard work with their peers in the class, uh, instead of just kind of throwing it over the wall to me and then walking away at the end of the semester. And so some classes I know will do things like have student presentations, like five minute presentations. And I always feel like they're a death march. Um, students get up, they give their little presentation. It's kind of slow. It goes okay. And, a lot of people are just kind of bored and it takes up a lot of class time. 
But there's a class at Harvard, it's very famous, called CS50. Uh, David Malin teaches it. And a big component of this class, it's an introductory computer science class, is a project fair at the end of the semester where he has all the students that have done projects. They, they, they basically get together in a very large space. Uh, there's music, there's food, there's balloons, and it's half party and half sharing. And I said, I want that for my class. And so what I did in the spring is I said, we're going to have a poster session. And so it was kind of a, a cross between the CS50 project fair and like a hard science conference poster session where I had the students, uh, I, broke up, I broke the class into three groups. And I had the first group present their um, research on posters. It was in, actually in a, a technology class, a tech, what we call the Teal classroom here at Yale, the Technology Enabled Active Learning Classroom. And when, in the first round, eight students put up their posters describing their work on big screens that, were, that are all around the, the edge of the room. And the rest of the students wandered around. There was, we had music. It was a, it was a, a class on um, economics in Latin America. So I had Latin music mm -hmm. and I brought a bunch of food and drinks and it was fun. And then at the end of that round, uh, everyone voted on what was the best poster and what was the best project. Because those two things, they're not always the same. Uh, and then I gave it a little award. And so it was very low stakes in terms of their grade. But everyone takes pride in their work. And it was much more about kind of sharing what you'd done than kind of trying to get a good grade. And it was great. We did it outside class time. We did it in the evening. Um, and, and it was so fun. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm do, planning to do it this semester during the last week of classes in the evening uh, with a class of about 120 uh, where we have group projects instead of uh, individual projects. And so it's about 30 different groups, break them into uh, three rounds, run it the same way. And I would highly recommend uh, anyone else that has students doing projects, and I know there are a lot of classes like this, to do something like an end of semester poster session. I have linked in the show notes, which will be at teachinginhighered.com slash 76 to your blog that you wrote about the same topic so people can find out more. Yeah, that's, that's got, it's got pictures of the, the spring poster session that I did. I also um, linked to the CS50 course website, and that looks like a really good model for laying out course resources. I'm gonna it's incredible. That later. <laughs> it's incredible. That, that class, it does everything in an extreme way. Yeah. We actually uh, interviewed David Malin on a recent episode of the Teach Better podcast where he explains why he makes all of these fairly extreme decisions in teaching that class. Um, that's a class that's, that's being co-taught this year uh, across Harvard and Yale. He's got uh, about 350 Yale students right now and a lot more students also at Harvard. And he's teaching it in both places. It was so much fun to listen to that episode. I'll link to that in the show notes too. They uh, even have a class DJ, which... <laughs> they do. They sure do. <laughs> well, thank you so much for carving out time today to be on the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. And it's actually, this is going to air before Thanksgiving. And so what a perfect time to say how thankful I am for you that I got to meet you and have had you on the show and consider you a friend. Oh, Bonnie, I feel exactly, exactly the same way.
It was so great having Doug on the show once again, and I had lost track of time and wanted to let him go meet with a student that he had set up prior arrangements with. I'm giving my recommendations solo today, and I'm going to recommend Sherlock. Sherlock is a British drama, and it is from the characters and detective plots of Sherlock Holmes. And it is from, it is set in early 21st century London. And what I love about Sherlock is it's just got such great characters and such tremendous acting. There are currently three seasons and each, each season only has three episodes. They're around 110 minutes each. And there's a special episode that's going to be between the third and fourth season that's coming out on January the 1st. So my recommendation is to watch those first three seasons of Sherlock and enjoy the great plot and great acting that happens. And then you'll be ready for January 1st, 2016. Thanks everyone for listening to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks again to Doug for being on the show again. And I just want to encourage everyone to make sure that you have subscribed to our weekly updates. And that's where you'll get the show notes and a blog once a week about teaching or productivity in your inbox without having to do a thing. To subscribe, you just go to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And when you do, you will receive the free EdTech Essentials ebook that has 19 tools to help you integrate technology into your teaching and productivity. Thanks once again for listening and we'll see you next time.